Good to see you all. We, uh, <laughs> I almost said, hey, we have some important people here today, which would suggest that the rest of you aren't. Hey, you all are important today. How's that? Very positive. But the Vertrons are here today. Why don't you stand up for a sec? They, uh, they've been our, on our global partners and uh, ministry staff for how many years? Over 28 years, we've been supporting them on the mission field and partnering with them, and they're ministering in Romania, and they had a chance to be here today. So I would just love it. I wanted to make sure you guys knew they were here, and I would love it. They're going to be in the lobby afterwards. If you haven't met them, go up and give them some Calvary love and hospitality and just uh, meet them and bless them. Um, if you know them, make sure you go up and say hi as well, okay? I just want to know that they are here. We are honored you guys are here. Thanks for being here today on a day where I have a fun topic for all of <laughs> you. One of the reasons I uh, really wanted our church to journey through uh, the book of Mark, um, and we've been doing this for a while, we've taken breaks for like, um, you know, Advent or Lent, but we've been kind of journeying through the book of Mark. The cool thing is, is that the topics and the, um, the things that talk about come to us. It's not just like, Oh, here we want to talk about this thing and this thing. Because what can kind of happen as well is you start talking about things as a pastor that you just want to talk about or convictions that I have. And sometimes pastors can avoid maybe tougher conversations or things that might feel a little sticky or, or confusing or shameful or whatever it might be. But the beautiful thing about just teaching through a book or, or God's Word in a consistent way, sometimes the topics come to us, and that's very much the case um, today. And this is also a big reason why we put together our biblical literacy course. So if you haven't, so so far I think 125 plus people have kicked in and started with that. Some have finished, some are at varied places. Um, there's information in the back. It's our online course. And the, one of the things that's really important within that is just how do you look at Scripture? How do you read Scripture knowing that it definitely is written for you but not each thing was written directly to you, but how do you understand it in the context? This morning will be much more of a teaching as opposed to just inspiration. Though, man, I am counting on the Holy Spirit for some inspiration in your hearts and minds as well. Let me read the passage this morning. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you, he replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Well, it was because of your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. There's a few things I want to say as we launch into this topic. 
I know that all of you have a story, and many things have happened in your story or might be currently happening in your story. I understand that. Statistically speaking, every single person in this room has been affected by divorce in some way. Either it's somebody that maybe you have gone through it, or you had a parent that gone through it, or you have a friend or family. Statistically, we're all connected in some way. Also, there's a temptation to rush to some kind of opinion about somebody else. And we have a topic like this. Or you might have an opinion about what I am saying, or maybe what I'm not saying, or what you think I should be saying. I just would ask you to journey with me for a few minutes. My attempted approach this morning in handling verses like this, which is very connected to our biblical literacy course, which I encourage you to see, is this the value of context. Context in a few different ways. One, what's happening in the context of the book or letter that you're reading, that we don't just look at certain verses in the Bible as some kind of saying and we grab onto that alone. Secondly, what's happening in other places of Scripture that talk about the same thing or similar. And third, what's happening culturally at the time that it was written? How would the original audience have heard this? What was happening at that time? You see, context doesn't change everything. It brings depth and meaning to things. And it can help you understand, oh, that could inform what Jesus might have meant. Well, let's start with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you and praise you. Jesus, this uh, was a moment that Mark recorded where people came to challenge you. And in our human nature... We differently drift to what are the rules? What are the things that either we, the enemy wants to condemn us about or we condemn other people about? But I think, Jesus, I hear from you that this isn't what, about what you're against, but this is what you're for. So help us today. Spirit, work in our hearts and minds. In your name, amen. As a pastor, I get the unique privilege of doing a lot of weddings, and uh, I get the best view in the house. It's pretty amazing as everyone's there, and I'm next to the groom, and then the father of the bride, they come walking up, and I look at the groom, and he's all like, ah, and you know what, sometimes, they, sometimes I have to grab them because they start walking towards their wife. I'm like, not yet. The father gets this moment for like a few more minutes or seconds or whatever. It's a beautiful view. I look at the people, and no one's there looking at me, right? They're looking at the bride and looking at the groom. It's a wonderful spot. Until I walked Anna up the aisle, and then I felt like I had the worst view because I was looking at this boy who was stealing my dog. I'm just kidding. He's just there. <laughs> I love him. No matter what the size of wedding, because I've done weddings where there was the bride and groom and one person witnessing, or a gathering of five, six hundred people, something consistently happens. They stand in before each other and make promises, right? And vows and make commitments. I've heard some pretty amazing things over the years. One, I was so moved that after the, the groom made his vows, I started to weep. And literally, the bride pulled a handkerchief out of somewhere and started to wipe my tears. True story, huh? Lisa? And I'm like, that was beautiful. And the bride's like, it's okay, Dale. And I'm like, what is happening? 
There is nobody in that moment of vows and commitments are we thinking, man, one day these are going to be really hard. One day I might drift from this. One day I might even break this one. We stand there with full confidence and commitment that the vows we're making are going to stick. Of course we do. It would be odd to be like, well, I love you and I'll give it my best shot. It's different. It feels different. And then as your life goes on, you maybe you hear advice, you read books, you hear sermons about best practices. You might have a few arguments along the way, and then you drift, and sometimes you wonder, are we going to be okay? We have different expectations and obligations and sensations sometimes lure us, and they start to demand our attention. And what I've seen to be true is that when something has your attention, someone doesn't have your attention anymore. Many times it's not intentional, but we start to drift. And as I've said many times, we don't drift into good things. Ships never drift into port. They drift into rocks, over waterfalls, and into cliffs. We don't drift into good things, but sometimes that happens within our covenant. Maybe, though, we've missed the point of what marriage is actually supposed to be. A quote that I'm not saying this is I agree or don't agree, but I think it's interesting. Gary Thomas, in his book on sacred marriage, writes this. What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? If I took a poll of people in gender, like why do people get married, I would guess high percent was because God wants me to be happy. But what if part of the process is also to make you holy? But let's get back to Mark chapter 10. Mark's telling a story within a certain context. The context was the Pharisees' lives. Now, Matthew gives a broader stroke of the same story in Matthew chapter 19. I would encourage you to go home and read that as well as Jesus gives a few more words. But Mark gives a very distinct slice of that. And I want to take a few moments to talk about the culture because I think it's important. Look at this. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The word tested. They didn't come to learn, right? They came to test, to validate their own opinion, to trap Jesus, to hear what he had to say. We know what this is like. We come and test a lot. What is your view on this? What is your response to this? What is your stance on this? And we'll see if I agree. They tested with the Jewish law where there was even a disagreement amongst them. They tested because Herod had divorced his own wife so that if Jesus said something against him, maybe they could have Herod come in and take care of Jesus. But the Pharisees were doing this in their own marriages as well. Here's the culture. There was a greater audience of what Jesus was talking to and teaching. The time, at that time, the Jewish people had two uh, distinct schools of thought around marriage. Um, it, it comes from this. To paraphrase Moses, as Jesus said, if a woman becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he can write her certificate of divorce. So the battle was this interpretation around displeasing and indecent. So this was like way back. So there was two distinct schools of thought. One was coming from a rabbi named Shammai, 
and another one Hillel. Shammai said this. He had a very strict that divorce was only an adultery or unchastity. But Hillel had a school of thought where he said that for any reason the man saw his wife as unfavorable in his eyes, he could divorce her. So as human nature goes, they started to be really shaped by the easier of the path. And that was the culture which Jesus was in. But in both cases, only a man could initiate it. The woman had no voice. According to the Hillel interpretation, a man could divorce his wife if she spoiled his dinner by putting too much salt in it, if she went into public with her head uncovered, if she talked with men on the streets, if she was a brawling woman, if she spoke disrespectfully of her husband's parents in his presence, if she was troublesome or quarrelsome. So this was in their mindset at this time in this culture. These are the reasons why you could divorce and leave your wife. And like I said, they drifted to the easiest of what they saw. And even today in 2023, as you listen to this, your experience, your thoughts and opinions about divorce affect how you hear this same thing as well. The range may be as wide in this room as the super conservative path of the Shema, only for these reasons, to the Greeks at Jesus' time where they saw multiple intimate relationships being a viable thing because the women served different purposes in a man's life. But among all these people listening to Jesus' response, there is a group who started to hear hope from a rabbi for the first time. And this was the woman of Jesus' day. They started to hear, you have a voice. They started to hear, with God, you have always had a voice. Because up until that time, the Jewish culture, at least how they were structured, saw the woman as a thing. And then it was up to a man to decide whether the covenant would continue. But Jesus says, I'm going to answer this in a bigger way. What we do a lot of times um, when you're in a discussion and you disagree or you want to know facts, you go to Google or whatever search engine of your choice. If you were going to Google to um, look up what does the Bible say about divorce, you would find things like, I, meaning God, hate divorce in Malachi. Secondly, you might find it's allowed in cases of adultery. Another thing you would find is if you abandoned if you've been abandoned by an unbelieving spouse. Now, if you're experiencing some emotions around there, hang, hang in there with me. When we narrowly mindedly ask, what are the rules? What are the details? What is your stance on this? What are you against? It's almost like we've joined the voices of the testers. Give me the narrow-minded view. You see, approaching Scripture like a Google search actually joins in the testing of Jesus. We do this with so many topics. And so often we take what we already think and try to find some support for it. But I think this misses the biggest question, and this is the question I believe that how Jesus answers. The bigger question is this, is how does Jesus see marriage? 
Another thing that we talk about within biblical literacy course is to ask yourself when you're reading scripture, where am I in God's story? Is this the beginning, the middle? The, like, where am I in this? Because it's an unfolding story. So having that mindset within the story of God of scripture, how does Jesus see marriage? We start at the beginning, as Jesus did. Beginning, the beginning of the story of God in Genesis, it says, The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother, and he's united with his wife, and they become one flesh. One flesh. It's spiritual. It is physical. But the idea is that wherever you go, even if you're by yourself, you carry your marriage with you. You become one. It was at that moment of even doing my daughter and Jacob's wedding that the moment of proclamation of like, this is man and wife, that God put on me, this is not just words, this is literally an honoring and what I'm a part of here. So as the body nourishes itself, the call to nourish relationship within marriage is the same. It's almost like only working out with your left arm and leaving your right arm to atrophy, to die, would be the same as if you didn't feed the marriage. In the middle of the story of God, the prophet Malachi is writing about the spiritual demise of the people. And he's saying, this is why things are falling apart for you. He says this, another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears, you weep and wail because... He no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask, why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant has not the one God made you. You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. It says when you're breaking covenant, you're doing violence to the one you actually should be protecting. It's like somebody who is an ally, and all of a sudden they're safe behind enemy lines, and they're actually doing the devious work of infiltrating and hurting themselves. Why does God hate divorce? Because he sees it as the people he's connected and saying, this is the one you should be protecting, and now you're the one hurting them. It rips my heart out. The act of after the act of Jesus and the story of God. Keep in mind the context of the day. Divorce was okay for very little reasons. Women were excluded in society, for sure, in the marriage context. And what started happening is that because of this, women started pushing away being married altogether because I have no say. Paul then writes this, which is a dramatic statement for the time. Husbands, Love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water from, through the word, and to present to her 
present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, and holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. So this is what I believe Jesus is saying in light of all of Scripture and to his response. That Jesus looks at the breaking of the covenant as the separation of one flesh, which does violence to the one we actually should be protecting and therefore actually confuses God's relationship with the church. This is a big question, is it not? They might be thinking, what makes me happy in my own life? And Jesus is saying, it affects so much more. So what is Jesus for? What is Jesus about? By looking at love and marriage through God's eyes, we see that love and marriage unite into one flesh. That love and marriage is designed to protect each individual. And that love and marriage reflects the care that God has for us. Okay. Some of you are like, I've been married for 35, 40 years, 50 years, 10 years, 20. This isn't my issue. Are you protecting the one that God has asked you to protect? Some of you are like, I've been through divorce. What does Jesus now hate me? Hang in there with me. Once again. This isn't a teaching around Jesus even saying, this is what I'm against, but let me pull you what I'm for. One of the things that Jesus is speaking to, now let me read this. Go back to his words. It is because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, where God is joined together, let no one separate. See, one of the things that I believe Jesus is doing is he's clarifying the protection of the wife. When he's asked, Jesus, what are the rules? He says, what did Moses say? Well, Moses said, it's okay, we could do this. He goes, that's because your hearts were hard and you just kept demanding, but it was all coming from men. When Jesus pulls back and goes, let me talk about the garden. What he's saying is, let me clarify the power of the wife the woman has within this relationship. This is equality in humanity, male and female. That two will become one. It's not half and half become one. Or that you only become whole when you're married. You actually both submit and receive each other. He's saying this is the beauty of it. So with all of this in mind, as I mentioned before, If you do a Google search for biblical divorce, you're going to find all sorts of things. But the thing you probably won't find in the Google search is the gospel. You won't find the gospel story. You won't read that the gospel restores the hurting and offers redemptions for the offending. Because a conviction of rules without the lens of the gospel falls short every single time. You see, the real essence of this passage, what I just want to communicate to you is this, was that Jesus was insisting that the loose sexual morality and deference to covenants of his day had to be mended 
it had to be fixed. Two, that those who sought marriage only for pleasure must be reminded that marriage is also responsibility and covenant keeping. Three, those who regarded marriage simply as a means of gratifying the physical self need to be reminded that there's also a spiritual reality that Jesus says that it represents him and the church. And fourth, and probably one that you probably don't see unless you understand the cultural context. Last week, Jesus says, um, he's talking about the little ones. And sometimes we say that as kids. But when we call, we cause the vulnerable to stumble. When we disregard those who might be in a vulnerable case, they should actually be, have a millstone thrown around the neck. And in this case, and in this culture, it was the women who were the vulnerable ones. That Jesus was clearly saying, enough is enough. Jesus is making it clear to his community that the woman can be protected only if she is no longer treated as an object, but an equal, including in conflict. Before we leave Mark 10 altogether, though, let me try to explain the final verse, because this is the one that gets quoted and thrown my direction a lot. And I can also say, just look at other scripture, once again, Matthew 19, as Jesus gives a little more explanation. When they're in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. That's a heavy one. We should immediately notice that Mark is giving an abbreviated slice compared to Matthew 19. I've said that a few times because that's the importance of biblical literacy. Where else in Scripture does it talk about it? Because when Matthew talks about it, Jesus clearly says, apart from adultery. But Mark is making a very clear cultural statement to the Pharisees and to the people of his day. The disciples know that the Pharisees were not divorcing their wives because of sexual immorality. When they got tired of people, they discarded them. The disciples also knew that the Pharisees were the champions of easy divorce. And they wanted Jesus' opinion on it, which is why they asked him about divorce in the first place. So I believe in these verses, Jesus is answering the disciples' question. In a well-known social situation of things that happening in their culture, some of the Pharisees were divorcing their wives just to be with other women. And in that culture, although it was rare, some women were doing the same thing. Jesus wanted and demanded consistency with the covenant that remains true. He's saying if you simply disregard after the desire for something else, you are ripping apart what God has put together. Divorcing someone for no other reason than you like someone better than your spouse is in effect the same thing as simply having an affair with a person. You've probably heard of the phrase FOMO, the fear of missing out, right? Lisa and I joke that we have JOMO, the joy of missing out. There's also another real thing called phobo. It's the fear of better options, that you might be missing out on better options. 
So some of us are currently involved in relationships where we're kind of one foot in, one foot out, and just hoping there might be a better option. That may not be on the forefront of your mind, but your covenants are kind of that way. We're like, well, this is how I'm going to be seen, but the reality of my heart might be something different. Jesus is saying, lock in. I hurt when you hurt. It hurts when you break up and have divorce because you're not protecting the one I've asked you to protect that you promised, so it hurts. But I forgive you, and I love you. At the same time, let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Let me turn the corner a little bit. A friend of mine avoided marriage for years out of uh, fear of divorce. He saw the aftermath of his parents' five cumulative divorces and wanted nothing to do with marriage at all. After he came to following Jesus, he started to see things a little different. He started to see how marriage could be between two redeemed people and how it actually could start to reflect the gospel. He began to see that his parents' divorces didn't mean that marriage itself is bad or that God was wrong. It's just evidence of the effects of sin marring even the good gifts that God has given us. You see, I know that no marriage is perfect. No marriage is without sin. And divorces will continue to happen in the family of God as well. But my friends, I want you to know the gospel can change everything. The gospel can change your current covenant relationship with your spouse no matter where it's at right now. The gospel can change any decision that you've made. God is bigger than those things. While divorce can be devastating, the cross is sufficient for your hurt and your grief. Even in broken families, God is working for our good in the midst of pain and suffering. Children who've experienced the devastating effects that divorce can bring don't have to despair because they have a God who loves them. They can experience the goodness of God and the redemption that he offers and in turn offer the comfort they've received to those who are hurting around them. These words of Jesus can sound really difficult because the covenant between man and wife and before God is really it can be the most life-giving thing or it can be the most life-destroying thing. It's that powerful. Some things I want you to know just as I close up. There is no way in one message or one sermon I can answer or respond to all of the situations or questions that you might have. I'm not even sure I can do that in a whole series. But if you would like to talk or share your opinion, Let's meet. Reach out. I'd like to talk with you. So often I have heard that Christians will tell me or certain people will tell me, this is what the Bible says, this is the only thing. I said, have you read bigger parts? I too agree with Jesus. Divorce makes God really hurt. I have never seen people go through divorce while they're going through it and they're like, this is the most fun thing I've ever had in my life. It's hard, and it's hurtful, and God is with you. 
He redeems you. So husbands and wives, just don't hold on and hope that you hold it together. Protect the one you've promised to protect. Breathe life into the ones that you've promised to breathe life into. And go to God regularly and often. The last thing I want to share is this before a quote. Lots of couples get counseling before they get married, right? It's a good thing. It's a fun thing. They get engaged. It's pre-marriage counseling. They come in and they're excited. They're happy because their life is great and perfect. And like I've shared before, they come in and say, Dale, we're perfect together. We never fight. So I make them fight. And they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, it's called real life. The journey of how you get through those fights. But something happens in our minds that when we're married, you only get help when you're in trouble. And all of a sudden it becomes shameful. That is a lie of the devil, right? Get help and journey and get prepared. But as in this most important relationship where Jesus says, this actually reflects me in the church. Have people feed into it. Encourage it. Get the help. Talk through it. Pray for each other's marriages. Pray for each other's struggles. My encouragement as your pastor, don't get to the point, my so often, people will come to me and they've already decided the end of their marriage and then they bring it up. And they go, what do you think? And I'm like, what do you mean, what do I think? You've already gone down the paths. We just wanted you to know we already did all this. My imploring for you was like, long before then, let me be a part, at least praying with you and helping you and getting you the real help that you need and want. Because God wants it with you. Let me close with this thought from Timothy Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. He writes this. Within this Christian vision for marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of the person God is creating and to say, see, and to say, I see who God is making you, and it excites me. I want to be a part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew. I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpse of it, uh, glimpses of it on earth. But now look at you. Each spouse should see the great thing that Jesus is doing in the life of their mate through the word, the gospel. Each spouse then should give him or herself to be a vehicle for that work and envision the day that you will stand together before God, seeing each other presented in spotless beauty and glory. That is the absolute beauty of what marriage could be. And if you've gone through brokenness and divorce, God says, I still redeem you. I still want to do this with you, that you look at the one you love the most to promise to protect and say, I see God doing this in you and I can't wait to celebrate with you that day we stand before the throne and you're like, I knew it! God did it! In you and through you. I know that was a lot of, I just, sometimes we look at scripture, we grab little words and it just throws us off. But I want you to hear what I believe is God's, in Jesus' intent. When people as believers want you to say, what are you against? Will you model Jesus and go, let me tell you what I'm for. I am for. You're not avoiding the question. You're just not limited to the testing that they want to do. Let's pray.
just sit with God for a moment and have him speak to you. I believe this is where the Spirit can really do his work. Sometimes we, in these moments, we can sit and we're imagining God having kind of this disappointed, stern look at us, and so we'd rather just think about something else. So during this time, if maybe because of a choice or action, you suspect that God is disappointed with you and actually has this kind of his arms crossed and his stern look at you, this is the perception you have, it probably causes you to avoid God altogether. So when you're in most in need of his love and acceptance, you actually kind of withdraw to loss. Because when we think of God as being disappointed in us, especially at those times when we're disappointed in ourselves, we actually fail to meet the one person the one love that actually understands us, accepts us, delights in us, and is eager to smile at us. Yeah, God, God's heart gets broken. And he's just not a God who has the ability to love. He is love. <laughs> he is grace. So his arms are open always to the one who is hurt and to the one who hurts, to the one who is doing the hurt. He's still saying, I'm here. Stop, and I'm here. As Paul wrote to the Romans, nothing separates us from the love of God. No height, no depth, no any other created thing, no powers of this world. Nothing can separate us from the love of God sit in that for a moment. All the narratives in your head, no matter what they are, no matter how loud they can be, no matter how real they seem or viable they feel, no matter how much you think you can overcome those narratives on their own, you just can't beautiful thing is that Jesus took all of those things on himself and he took them to the cross and he died for those very things and put him to death. Paul reminds us that we have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ alive in you, the hope of glory. It's because of that reason we remember every week we receive communion so that we can hear the words this is the body and blood of Jesus that has been broken for you so if you have narratives in your head some of it is conviction some of it is you might feel shame that's not what Jesus wants but he wants repentance to have you come back to him some of them, there might be some marriages in here that are teetering to the point you haven't 
breathe life into your spouse in years? Will you, will, will you just give it to God today? Will you receive prayer today? I think most of all, I just want you to hear how much Jesus cares about the relationships with him and the relationships with each other. Jesus, thank you. You make all things new. The hurts of our past, the hurts of our presence, maybe the hurts are even ahead of us. You make things new. You are forgiving and loving and restoring and redeeming. You're not just an appeaser of hurt, but you are the one who frees us from the hurt. That joy is possible, that peace is possible, that hope is possible. Thank you. In your name, amen. I do want to encourage you, if you have questions or want to talk, let's set up some time to talk. If it's as a couple or an individual, sometimes topics like this, people have certain opinions or things, let's talk. Please just don't send me an email with all of your thoughts, and it's just hard to respond. I mean, if you do, I'll just probably will call you. So let's just talk. Let's be honest and real. I'll be over here on the side. I'd love to pray with you or just chit-chat with you with this. But I'm going to pray for God's blessing on you. God, I pray for my family and friends. May you bless them and keep them. May your face shine upon them. May they feel the presence of your spirit and the joy of your heart. We love you in your name. Amen. Also, take a time to say hi to the patrons. I think they're going to be in the lobby. Say hi to them. Bless them. Thank them for being with us.